Well, we're making our way through 1 Samuel, so if you're a guest with us, this is the fourth sermon in this book that we're making our way through, one of the most important books of the Old Testament in terms of establishing a new um, entity in the people of Israel, which is the monarchy, the, the, king, the kingship that would reign in Israel um, from here on out. We've seen the birth of Samuel who the book is named after, an important figure um, in the in the people of Israel, raised up as a prophet in some dark days, some difficult days, um, in the days of the judges, which is when this is taking place. You remember the judges period was a dark and dismal period in the people in the pe- during the people in the history of the people of Israel, and Samuel is a ray of hope that has come upon the scene. Remember, his mother Hannah was barren. She had prayed for a son. The Lord answered. She devoted her son Samuel to the Lord's service from his youth on up. And then last week, Samuel drops off the scene for about three chapters. And things go from bad to worse. As we see this story of the traveling ark move throughout Israel and the land of the Philistines, bringing destruction and judgment wherever it comes. And then Samuel comes back on the scene here in chapter 7, and things get really, really good, albeit short-lived, but really, really good in this chapter. I've entitled our sermon this morning, New Morning Mercies. I came across a quote this week that I thought fitly summarized the sermon. It was a tweet from one of my friends, Matt Smethurst. He said, one sign you've encountered God is that you walk with a limp, not a strut. We're going to see Israel encounter God this morning. And all their swagger gets knocked out of them. The strut that they had in chapters 4 through 6, the ark's with us. We're going to succeed. The ark's back. Uh Uh-oh. All that swagger that they had, that presumption that characterized them. As Samuel comes back on the scene, we see Israel in this chapter consecrating themselves again and afresh to God. Instead of trying to use God like they had done in the previous chapters, they give themselves to God to be used by Him. Instead of treating God lightly, as they had treated Him in the previous chapters, they give Him the weightiness and the gravity that His glorious presence deserves. And instead of assuming His grace, they humble themselves before God and acknowledge their great need of His grace. Last week we considered what happens when God present, how God's presence leaves His people. God's presence leaves His people when His presence is used or robbed or mocked or assumed. Well, this week we're going to see four things that bring God's presence back among His people. And in fact, are the very things that the presence of God produces in His people. So far from just being something that's transactional, the people feel this way and God comes back, it's that God comes back and creates the very climate that He requires to dwell among His people. So we're going to see four elements of that this morning. First of all, God's presence returns when we repent of our idolatry. God's presence returns when we repent of our idolatry. See, Samuel is a prophet. He's a person who brings the word of God to the people. And so the first thing that Israel needs is a prophet. 
Just as we read in Jeremiah, someone to speak to them about the realities of their condition. And this is exactly what Samuel does in verse 3. We read, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. Now, why would he say that? If you are returning. Well, look at the previous verse, verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So this is two decades that passes. From the time that the ark had returned and they had sent it away till the time that Samuel is speaking to them. Now Samuel's a young man now, right? He was just a boy when we left him in chapter 3. Well, now he's probably in his late 20s, early 30s, something like that. And he's speaking to the people who have been in lamentation for two decades. And they are coming back to the Lord. And Samuel says to them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then what do you need to do? You need to genuinely repent. You need to put away the foreign gods and the Astaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Astaroth and they served the Lord only. That's really good. They turned from their sin. And that sin, Samuel said, must lead to action. It must lead them to repentance. They need to get rid of the idols that they were hoping in. Genuine repentance always moves beyond wet eyes and stirred emotions and into concrete action. And the ways in which repentance manifests itself here is to cast away the idolatry that had marked the people and cling to God alone. As William Cooper reminded us in his hymn, he wrote, and this is the hymn, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God. He wrote, Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made you mourn and drove you from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, Help me to tear it from your throne and worship only thee. It's like he was reading 1 Samuel 7, 3 and 4 when he wrote those words. Because that's exactly what the people of Israel do. They tear the idols from God's throne and commit to worship God alone. Dear ones, the essence of repentance is the removal of idolatry. Do we have such idols today? Well... We're not seeing many statues of Baal and any Astaroth around Owensboro. But yes, we have idols today. Idolatry, first and foremost, as Calvin reminded us, is found in the human heart. Our heart is a perpetual factory of idols. It manufactures idols all the time. We don't have to have visible manifestations in the form of stone statues in our land to determine if we have idolatry or not. John, the apostle, told In his first letter, dear ones, beloved, keep yourselves from idols. And he was writing to a New Testament church, New Testament Christians. We read in 1 Thessalonians that one of the marks of the Thessalonians' conversion is that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. So what are idols? Essentially, what are they? Well, idols oftentimes take the shape of good things that we turn into God things. And they become bad things as a result. 
They can be good things like marriage and children, appearance, wealth, health, success, career, religious performance, political parties, a cause, a loving relationship, a possession, a hobby, a pleasure, a status. Idols can take all kinds of forms. Let me talk about four of them briefly this morning. We can pursue the idol of comfort where life only has meaning if we experience a specific kind of pleasure or a particular quality of life. It looks like being laid back and easy, but the worst fear of those who serve this idol is stress. And the biggest problem becomes boredom or laziness. We will sacrifice productivity and it can leave others feeling neglected when we are serving the idol of comfort. What about another idol, the idol of approval? where life only has meaning if we are loved and respected by other people. It looks like being likable and friendly, but our worst fear becomes rejection and our biggest problem becomes cowardice. We can become codependent and it can leave other people feeling smothered. Or what about the idol of control, where life only has meaning if we feel like we have mastery over all the areas of our lives. It looks like being competent and altogether But our worst fear becomes uncertainty and our biggest problem becomes anxiety. It can leave others feeling condemned or judged. Or maybe we pursue the idol of power where life only has meaning if we have influence and impact. It looks like being confident. looks like being a strong leader. But our worst fear becomes humiliation and our biggest problem becomes anger. It can leave others feeling manipulated and used. How do we know what our idols are. How do we uncover idolatry? Well, let me suggest two ways to you. First of all, look where your treasure is. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where, what do you treasure the most? If your house were on fire and you were running out, what would you take with you? That's indicative of your treasure. And again, if you would grab your children, if or your wife or your spouse, if your house were on fire, or your dog, or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean that your spouse, or your dog, or your children is an idol. It just shows you where your treasure is. That's indicative of what you value. What is that person, thing, or experience that you are most fearful of losing? Who or what do we love the most? What is the source of our joy? What is preeminent and ultimate and occupying the position of glory in our lives? You can look at where your treasure is. Second, you can look at what you sacrifice for. The Bible often uses the word sacrifice in relationship to idolatry because it uses the word sacrifice in relationship to worship. So where does our time go? To whose demands are we listening? Idols make demands. Idols make demands on our time. Idols make demands on our money. Idols make demands on our attention. So where does our time go? Where does our money go? Where does our attention go? Now, I don't mean to pick on professional sports. This could be applying to many different things. This could apply to something I love, which is concerts. But when when we talk about professional sports, in terms of time, do you know the top five rated programs on television of the top five rated televisions on program uh, on television today four of them have the initials nfl before them four of the top five programs in 2021 the 32 teams of the nfl generated 17.19 billion u.s dollars that's money they make 
We tend to look back at times like 1 Samuel 7 and say, look at this. Look at these primitive people gathering around their bales and their Ashtaroth and worshiping. What is this? This is so ridiculous. They're so primitive. They get together in large groups and worship their idols. We don't do that today. Oh, my friend, we do. The NFL, as a business, runs on idolatry. Does that mean that if we watch an NFL game, we're idolaters? No. But it runs. It runs on that. And as, as all major entertainment in our culture does. It runs on glory. It runs on treasure. It runs on sacrifice. Do you ever think about Sunday gatherings in sports stadiums as idol gatherings? Temples? A stadium is just a modern temple where great sacrifices of worship are offered to the gods on the field. It's nothing different than the old Roman Colosseums in its essence. Now, praise the Lord, we're not killing people. But it's run by the same sort of thing. So is it wrong to go to a sporting event? Of course not. It's just wrong to worship someone or something other than God. And to let it so dominate your life and your time and your treasure that you make ridiculous sacrifices to serve it. As many of you know, our beloved UK Wildcats aren't having the greatest of years. My friend, Pastor Robert Cunningham, whom many of you know, he was here a few years ago giving a small conference on engaging uh, the culture with the gospel. He's a huge UK fan. He lives in Lexington. And he was reflecting on this in a post he shared a few weeks ago. He said the following. He said, last night... I tweeted and then deleted my frustrations as a Kentucky fan. Now I'd like to share some thoughts as a Kentucky pastor. Why do we care so much? I would argue that there is something religious behind our fandom. How so? First of all, glory. He says, we were made to behold and admire glory. It's why we hike mountains, attend concerts, visit museums. And yes, sports are a glorious spectacle to behold. Second, community. We were made to experience community, and every community is formed around a common love. Sports offer us this, even uniting those who should be at odds. Sports are a cultural respite of of polarized sobriety as we fellowship around our shared love of a team. Thirdly, identity. We were made to identify with greatness, and sports offer this as well. It's why we speak of our team with first-person pronouns. We won. We? We were on the couch, not in the game. But we say this because we have identified ourselves with our team's successes. Robert continues, he says, And yet, as great as sports are, UK basketball fans are learning the painful lesson that sports are a terrible religion. Our glory is in ruins, our community is at odds, and our identity has failed. And so is there any glory, community, and identity to be trusted? Oh yes, only Jesus He is an inexhaustible glory that will never leave us wanting. He forms an eternal community. Indeed, a family with God as our Father. He is an identity that is risen from the dead, triumphant forevermore. Everything we seek in fandom is found in Him. So again, there's Robert just taking our eyes off of what could be seen and often is in many people's hearts an idol and say, look, this is this is failing us. This is letting us down. This is not the source of lasting joy. So let's turn our hearts to where it can be. So dear ones, look at your treasures. Look at your sacrifices. We don't have 
sex problems and money problems and food problems and alcohol problems and drug problems. We have idolatry problems. That's the problem. It's what we're looking to. It's what we're sacrificing for to get. And here's the thing about idols. They take, 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 and never give. So are we repenting of our idolatry? Are we asking the Spirit, search my heart, O God, see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, Psalm 139. Let's never let repentance become a thing that we use as a past tense verb in our church. Oh yeah, I repented. Dear ones, that's true. We repented when we came to Christ. But as Martin Luther reminds us, when the Lord Jesus calls us to repent, that's lifelong. We are constantly recognizing the sinful inclinations in our hearts and turning from them. We must be marked by a continual and regular repentance, turning back to God in humility. Just like what happened in the temple of Dagon, all of our idols must fall before the presence of the Lord. So what rival God need to be decapitated in your heart this morning? Let's pray. Lord, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only you. We must not put our hope in or center our joy on anyone else but God himself. He must be our treasure. He must be our prize. He must be our all. That's what we see mark the people of Israel. God's presence returns when his people repent of their idolatry. Secondly, God's presence returns when we rely on our mediator. God's presence returns when we rely on our mediator. Not only did it, does Israel repent, but they're doing everything their mediator, Samuel, is telling them to do. Look at verses 5 through 8. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. He's functioning as a mediator. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord as a sign of their repentance and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, this is very close to Philistine territory. Again, this is Samuel sort of testing their repentance. He's like, hey, let's gather really close to the Philistines. You say you're trusting in the Lord. You say you're repenting. Let's get within shooting distance, so to speak, that might draw them out to fight us. So they hear that Israel's at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines, verse 7, went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. People of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. What a great response. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So this time they don't say, Samuel, go get the ark. No, they say, Samuel, intercede. Samuel, mediate. Samuel, keep praying. See, throughout the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, God is always shining a light in the darkness through the presence of Samuel. In chapter 1, after meeting a barren woman named Hannah, who is weeping in Shiloh, we read in chapter 1, verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. In chapter 2, where we learn of the evil in the priesthood among the family of Eli, we read in chapter 2, verse 11, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. After hearing of the corruption in the sacrificial system, we read in chapter 2, verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. The, body, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. 
After Eli, remember, unsuccessfully rebuked his sons for their immorality and the Lord determined to put them to death, we read in chapter 2, verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And after the Lord decidedly rejects Eli's family and announces the coming death of Eli, we read in chapter 3, verse 1, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. This is intentional by the writer. Every time there's a dark period in the people of Israel, there's this ray of light that's flowing through the story. Samuel's here. Samuel's here. Don't worry. Whoop, glad that went open. Samuel's here. Samuel's here. And then we read at the end of chapter 3, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now after chapter 3, Samuel's not mentioned again until here, chapter 7, verse 3. So for four chapters... Things go from bad to worse without the presence of Samuel. Israel descended into evil and they fell in greater judgment all because their mediator was not there. But then Samuel reappears in chapter 7. And when Samuel stands as a prophet and a priest speaking God's word to the people and interceding for them in prayer, standing in the gap for Israel, what happens? Israel hears the word of the Lord. Israel does what Samuel told them and victory follows. What was the difference? They were relying on their mediator. A God-appointed mediator, a prophet, and a priest made all the difference in their lives. For Israel, at this time, that mediator, that prophet, that priest was Samuel. In our time, now, that mediator, that priest, that prophet is Jesus Christ, the greater Samuel. See, when we turn to God in repentance and exercise faith in our mediator... Everything changes. God is no longer our adversary. He's our emissary. God fights our battles for us. Instead of coming against us, He goes to war on our behalf. He acts in our defense. Dear ones, we have a great mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In Christ, when we trust in Him, we have the greatest defense attorney in the entire universe. Here is one who has lived and died in our place, whose intercessory wounds plead before the Father, forgive them, oh forgive they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. When we receive our mediator by faith, we are given access to the presence of God again. The veil is torn. And God, being relied upon, resolves himself to engage for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That is the heart of our God when we rely on our mediator. What about you this morning? Do you come in here focused on your performance, how you did this week? I blew it even this morning with my own children, reminding again of my own sin. And I come here reminded again, I need a mediator. I need a mediator. What about you? Do you come in here relying on your track record this week? Had a good week? Didn't sin as much as the week before? I can go to church. Or do you come in here every week, but for the grace of God? but in dependence on Jesus, relying on Him alone, repenting of my idolatry. 
I have no hope apart from my mediator. I need Jesus to pray for me, Jesus to intercede for me, Jesus to live for me, Jesus to die for me, Jesus to rise for me. Otherwise, I'm toast. That's who we are every week. And he, and he is, and he does, and he always lives to make intercession for us as his people. Thirdly, God's presence returns not only when we repent of our idolatry and rely on our mediator, but we rest in a sacrificial substitute. We rest in a sacrificial substitute. Picking up at verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Philistines got word that Israel was nearby, and so they planned another attack. And this time, Israel turned to Samuel, their mediator, their prophet, their priest, to intercede in prayer. And what else? To offer a sacrifice on their behalf. And the Philistines were defeated. So what's the difference? Well, not only that they were relying on their mediator, but also that mediator offered an acceptable sacrifice for their sins. This is the ultimate answer to the question posed at the end of chapter 6. Who can stand before the Lord? I'll give you an answer. Those who rely on their mediator and have a sacrificial substitute. Only those whose sin has been judged through a sacrificial offering of a Savior, only those who have a substitute to take their judgment can stand in the presence of God. See, because what was causing the Philistines to keep defeating Israel was not their superior military might alone. Israel had a great number of people. But the thing that was causing them defeat after defeat after defeat was the sin, that, the judgment on their sin that they deserved. And God was using the Philistines to judge Israel for their sin. But here... They offer a substitute. Samuel takes a nursing lamb and offers it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, just as God has instructed them. None of this sacrificial immorality that had occupied the old priesthood, but a true burnt offering of a lamb without blemish, a nursing lamb, a young lamb, not an old, dead, broken-legged lamb, a brand-new lamb that held great promise for Their livestock, they took it, they sacrificed it to the Lord. And dear ones, we need the same thing. Not in the form of a physical nursing lamb, but the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So who's our substitute? Who's our sacrificial lamb? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a greater lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the judgment we deserved in, our, in, in his body on the tree as our sacrificial substitute. And in, his, in our place, he died. And his death satisfied the judgment and wrath of God against our sin. And not only through their sacrificial substitute do the Philistines not defeat Israel, but Israel defeated the Philistines. See, through Christ's work on the cross, dear ones, 
as our sacrificial substitute, we are not only freed from sin's penalty, but also from sin's power. We have the power to defeat our enemies. Now, they're not physical enemies. They're spiritual enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil. Those are our Philistines. Those are the ones seeking our death. And while the presence of sin will remain in us until glory, the sacrifice of Christ is intended to do more for us than just forgive us. It also empowers us to live new, holy lives. This is what 1 Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, it's not just sin's payment that Christ was accomplishing. It's also on the cross freeing us from sin's power. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, his sacrifice is meant to not only help our enemies not defeat us, bearing the penalty for our sin, but also enabling us by the power of the Spirit to defeat our enemies. Just as Israel was not only defeated by the Philistines, or not defeated by the Philistines, but defeated them. There was a passive protection and an active engagement that was provided through that sacrificial substitute. And it's the same for us. Fourthly and finally... God's presence returns, as we've seen, repenting of our idolatry, relying on our mediator, resting in our sacrificial substitute. Fourthly and finally, God's presence returns when we remember his grace toward us. When we remember his grace toward us. How do we respond to such grace? Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen as the site of the battlefield and called its name Ebenezer, Ebenezer, Ebenezer. Eben, stone, or Ebba, and Ezer, help. Stone of help. This is where the Lord helped us. And he set up a monument to the Lord where there was monuments to Baals and Ashtoreth in, in Israel, and they tore those down. Here's a monument, Ebenezer. The Lord helped us right here as we defeated the Philistines and were not defeated by the Philistines. We remember what he has done for us. We are so prone to forget, aren't we? We're told to remember over 30 times in the New Testament. Hebrews 2.1 tells us why. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. If we don't remember, we drift. Those are our options. Remember or drift. Remember or drift. And we too must raise our Ebenezers, right? Larry referred to it on the front end. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. That's what we're singing. We're singing about this incident in First Samuel 7 where they set up a memorial stone called an Ebenezer, a stone of help. And as we gather for worship every Lord's Day, we raise up our Ebenezers. 
we acknowledge, God, you have brought me safe thus far. Your grace will lead me home. I don't want to depart from you. Prone to wander, the song says. Same song. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How do I not do that? Here I raise my Ebenezer. We stop doing that. We wander. You don't want to be prone to wander? Raise your Ebenezer. Count your blessings. Remember everything God has done for you. Write it down. Review it. Remember. What has He done for my soul? How has He cared for me throughout my life? How has God helped Israel? He helped them by helping them know their sins, know their sorrow, know the death and despair that sin left in its wake, know themselves, know their need for Him. Is that the way you remember God's help? God, you've taught me to know my sin. God, you've taught me the sorrow that comes with my sin. God, you've taught me the death and despair and destruction that sin lives in its wake. God, you've helped me to know myself as a sinner. God, you've helped me to recognize my need for you. You have helped me. That's how God helped them here. He helped them see how needy they were. Is that the way you look at the blessing? God, thank you for that season of trial. Oh, how it taught me how I need you. That's what it means to raise an Ebenezer. Not... Praise God for that $10,000 that just fell into my bank account. But I went through a horrific period of suffering. All because of my own doing. And God brought me out. He atoned for my sin. He delivered me from my idolatry. He provided a substitute for me. He mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am free. When you ask the Lord to help you, make sure it includes those things too. Lord, help me to know my need. Help me to know my sin. If God helps us in every other way, dear one, but does not help us in this way, that's no help at all. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his own soul? And this is, is this not the purpose of our worship gathering? Is this not the purpose of the Lord's Supper? To remind us of what the Lord has done for us every month, every week in a sense. As we gather together, we raise a corporate Ebenezer to the Lord. And then when we take the Lord's Supper and remember that God has carried us thus far and will carry us all the way home in, our, in communion, we remember the Lord's death until He comes. Why does God have to give us such remembrance? Because we forget. But God in His grace has provided a supper of remembrance to help us raise another Ebenezer and help us not to wander. See, that's why the Lord's Supper exists. As we make our way through the wilderness of this world, we have bread supplied from heaven. And we're reminded that Jesus' blood and body was given for us that we might be sustained in the wilderness. Drink of His blood, eat of His flesh, that we might make it through the wilderness of this world. Now what happens afterwards? Really good things. Verse 13, So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. This is what our mediator does for us. We are protected from our enemies. We are defended from our enemies. Though they can afflict us or threaten us, they can no longer subdue us. They can no longer take us over because Jesus reigns at the right hand of God as our mediator. Now, what brought victory into the lives of God's people, what led to the defeat of the, Phil- of, the, of, the, of the Philistines was not a new military strategy. It was not new weapons. 
It was simply the presence of the Lord among his people. This was not a presence that they could manipulate when his presence is used or robbed or mocked or abused or assumed. He reacts in judgment. But when his presence is invited through repentance and faith and sacrifice and worship, he acts in grace on behalf of his people. Why do we need to remember his faithfulness? Why do we need to raise our Ebenezer's? Well, because life with God, dear ones, is not marked by 1 Samuel 7 all the time. It's not revival after revival, renewal after renewal. It's not always shown in God moving in this great demonstration of power among his people. I love how this chapter ends because it ends very ordinary. Look at verses 15 to 17. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Ordinary, priestly, prophetic ministry. This is a summary of Samuel's ministry. Ministry is not all about the high points of revival that we see at the beginning of this chapter. Samuel shows up, preaches the word of God. The people repent collectively. They put away their idols. They pledge to follow the Lord. He defeats their enemies in a really demonstrable way. They build a memorial stone. And it just continues day after day like that. No. He went on a circuit year after year after year after year after year until he died. Ministry is not all about high points. Life is not all about high points. It also consists of routine and ordinary faithfulness. We'll see similar patterns under God's blessing in our own congregation. I pray that there will be seasons of great breakthrough where the Lord will appear to be moving among us in such power that that we can hardly talk about it for fear that it would not be with us anymore. Or that we can't talk about it enough to keep God's presence among us in that way. Where the Lord seems to be moving and saving power, saving people, healing relationships, adding to our number in baptism, granting repentance and renewal among even the oldest among us. Where the oldest among us feel like they're kids in the faith again, sharing the gospel like when they first met Jesus. But then there will also be days of plotting. Just ordinary Faithful plotting, and one goes hand in hand with the other. Fresh commitment requires faithful plotting to sustain it. Edwards knew this, Jonathan Edwards. Read the, read the, read the Great Awakening stories. What was it that killed revival, and what was it that sustained the effects of the revival? Ordinary plotting. Faithful church attendance. Faithful reading of the Bible. Faithful repenting of sin. Where that stopped after the revival happened, the revival stopped. Because it's the ordinary faithfulness that sustains the good work that revival did. Revivals always end in ordinary faithfulness. Revivals don't last. This lasts one chapter. We'll get into it next week when they start blowing it again. Let's not forget that, dear ones. Some Christians never learn this. They move from church to church book to book, relationship to relationship, conference to conference, chasing a high with God. And they never know the joys of faithful plotting. Young ones, 
Young guys, girls, before you change the world, change lots of diapers. What do I mean by that? Do the ordinary dirty work, right? I remember that's what Kevin DeYoung said at a college graduation. It was his first opening line. Before you change the world, change a diaper. I thought, that's good. Because only those who change diapers, not, not literal diapers, okay? You can, you know? But I'm talking about just doing the daily grunt work. And I'm so encouraged. When I walk, when I walk in here and I see our young people singing or serving or putting chairs away or lifting, I'm like, oh, there's future missionaries right there. Not those who are going down the street to chase some high because a great worship band is in town. But faithfully learning to deny themselves for the sake of Christ in the little things. And that's who we look for for leaders in our own congregation. We're not looking for the stars, the rock stars. We're looking for people who pastor and deacon without the titles. Who would do it and don't really care about it. And if you ask them, they'd probably be disposed not to take it. Because they don't feel worthy. They just want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So, dear ones, let's learn this lesson. The circuit through Benjamin that Samuel took is never as glamorous as the, as the revival at Mizpah, but life with God includes both. And may he give us a revival at Mizpah, but it will only be sustained if we're content, like Samuel, to keep doing the same thing year after year, year after year, faithfully loving our church family, faithfully loving our neighbors, faithfully serving in our jobs, loving our kids, loving our families, reading the Bible, praying, serving, all those things, just that ordinary faithful life. And God in his kindness and ways we don't deserve will surprise us from time to time and show up. And that will not be any more sign that he's pleased with us than all the other 10, 20 years we labored in relative obscurity where it seemed like God wasn't moving at all. So let me conclude with an obvious question that these chapters bring to us. And I just want to conclude with these words. Is it still this way for us now? What I mean by that, God's presence coming and going, right? It left the people early on. Now it's with the people. It's going to leave again in certain ways. Do, do, we, do we live that way now? No, because we have Hebrews 13, 5, and 6 and the promise of the new covenant. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He will never abandon us. We are assured that he will never leave us and that we will never leave him. What was the problem with Israel? Many of them had the presence of God among them without the presence of God in them. But that's not the case with us in the new covenant. Jeremiah thirty-two forty. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they will not turn away from me. Praise the Lord that that new covenant promise is a reality. We won't walk away from God and God won't walk away from us. That's his covenantal promise. That is his covenantal presence. But dear ones, we can still grieve his manifest presence among us. His covenantal presence is with us always until the end of the age. But we can please the Lord and we can grieve the Lord and we can invite discipline into our lives. This is what our confession, the way our confession puts it. True believers may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost. This may happen because they neglect to preserve it or fall into some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. It may happen through some unexpected and forceful temptation or when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are never completely lacking the seed of God, the life of faith, love of Christ, and the brethren, sincerity of heart, or conscience concerning their duty. 
Out of these graces, through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. In the meantime, they are kept from utter despair through them. So yes, God's, even though we're assured of our salvation and we're walking with the Lord, we can, through disobedience, through specific sin, grieve God's Spirit. Not in a way that drives His Spirit completely among us, from us, but in a way that will hinder the manifest enjoyment of His presence among us. So ultimately, that too is a mercy from our never-leaving God, because what does that cause His people to do? Go right back to Him. Lord, we want to know You. Lord, we want to be near You. Lord, we want to re-see You as we once did. And that'll just bring us right back to our Jesus right back to our mediator. Like Samuel, Jesus came preaching repentance to Israel. Like Samuel, he intercedes for us as a God's needy people. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb that Samuel's sacrifice typified, securing a true and everlasting redemption from sin for us. Like Samuel, Jesus has gone before us and defeated our enemies, enemies greater than the Philistines, sin, Satan, wrath, death. While Samuel secured a season of peace for Israel, Jesus has brought us eternal and everlasting peace between God and us, between his people and the church, and one day very soon with all of creation as the Prince of Peace makes lambs and lions to lie down together and no one again will hurt or destroy in all of his holy mountain. Tears are going to be replaced with laughter, sorrow with joy, division with unity, hatred with love, idolatry with worship, injustice with righteousness, oppression with liberation. So let's keep repenting. Let's keep relying. Let's keep resting. And let's keep remembering our greater than Samuel Savior, our mediator, our sacrificial substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for our Lord Jesus How grateful that we have the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How grateful we are to be your people. Thank you for granting us repentance. Thank you for helping us realize our need for you. Thank you for providing a mediator for us. Thank you for providing a sacrificial lamb. We want to remember all that you have done for us. Daily, hourly, moment by moment, continually raising our Ebenezer's. This far, the Lord has helped us. Lord, I acknowledge your help. I remember your help. I praise you for your help. Help us. We are a forgetful people. So help us as we gather each Lord's Day, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we read your word, as we commune with you, as we pray, Lord, to recount the ways you have been good to us, to remember your faithfulness to us. May your faithfulness be our song in the night. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.